after an intense montage sequence, he was able to enlarge himself many, many times and turn his skin to stone. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Known as the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin was the man responsible for first bringing Anglo colonists to Texas. However, this dream was actually the creation of another Austin, his father Moses. Together, these men braved hardship and adversity to set the stage for the great drama of Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texas rodeo? Well, I've only ever been to one uh, rodeo in my life, um, so I'm going to have to choose the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Well, I'm going to just throw out there the Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo, and the reason for that is not that I've ever attended it, but that it goes all the way back to 1896. Uh, and has been continuously operating. This is a history podcast, after all. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with another piece of history: the Texas Prison Rodeo. This was a rodeo that was held. This was a rodeo that was held from 1930 until 1986 uh, at the Huntsville uh, Prison, uh, State Prison, and it was uh, prisoners were able to uh, have a rodeo and raise money for themselves and for the prison, and. Uh, they uh, featured prominently on the famed 1980 movie, Urban Cowboy. Great Yeehaw. film. <clears throat> great film. Great, actually, hey, great soundtrack. Mama, okay Mama's, film. Oh, wait. No. Wrong movie. Wrong yeah, so movie. Mama, Mama's, Mama's don't, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys, but that's no. electric cowboys. Especially not in prison. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mama's don't let your babies grow up to be prison cowboys. How's that's that? Stephen Fuller Austin was born in the mining region of southwestern Virginia in a community that still remains unincorporated, but is generally known as Austinville after its most famous resident. His father, Moses Austin, was born in 1761 in the Connecticut colony and was in the fifth generation of his line of Austins in America. Moses' father was a tailor and a tavern keeper, but Moses and his brother Stephen entered the dry goods business at a very young age and moved to Philadelphia and later to Richmond. Moses married Mary Brown, and she was the daughter of a prosperous iron merchant and landowner. Moses admired his father-in-law's wealth and got out of the merchant business and instead jumped into the mining industry. In 1789, he and Stephen, the elder, moved to southwestern Virginia and purchased a lead mine. Soon the mine was a success, and in 1793, Moses and Mary's first surviving child, Stephen Fuller, was born. Moses and Mary would have two more children, Emily and James. When Stephen was four, his family moved west to Missouri. Like many men on the American frontier, wealth and debt went hand in hand for Moses Austin. Businessmen and farmers alike speculated heavily on land and in other dealings and generally did so on credit. Mining is a costly business, and Moses not only borrowed money to buy his mines, but he had to borrow to pay for the equipment and labor. The mine was a success, and as long as the market for lead was high, the money came in. Moses, like many of his peers, didn't pay back his debts, and when the lead market collapsed a few years later, he lost everything, and the debt collectors came after him. Leaving everything behind, the Austins did another thing that many of his contemporaries did. They headed west. Hearing that the lands west of the Mississippi along the Missouri River were, were rich with lead, he traveled there with a passport from the Spanish colonial government. What he found was very promising. 
Moses' brother Stephen, for his part, was left holding the bag back in Virginia, and he struggled for some time to recover his losses and pay off debts. He did eventually recover a good part of his fortune, but he and Moses were estranged for most of the rest of their lives because of this. The elder Stephen did remain close and supportive of uh, the elder Stephen did remain close to and supportive of his namesake nephew, though. In 1898, Moses Austin made an agreement with the Spanish government. He would swear allegiance to Spain, and in return, he received a sitio. Sitio? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in return, he received a sitio, which was a form of land grant from that government to develop a lead mine at the Mine au Breton. This mine had originally been established by French colonists when it was part of the Louisiana province of New France. Moses renamed the area Potosi after the famed South American silver mine, and it became a huge success. Within a few years, Moses was the lead king of the West. In 1803, students of history will know that Potosi and Missouri became part of the United States with the Louisiana Purchase, and Moses and his family became happy American citizens once again. When Stephen was 11, he was sent back east to be educated. He first attended Bacon Academy in Colchester, Connecticut, but then went to, but then went to Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. He graduated in 1810 and returned to Missouri. He worked as a storekeeper, the manager of the family mining business, and director of a failed bank on different occasions. He also served as a militia officer and began studying to be a lawyer. His ambition for politics showed itself early, and he got elected to the legislature of the Missouri Territory at just 21 years old. His skill apparently matched his ambition, as he was re-elected to that position every year from 1813 to 1819. As a legislator, Stephen was instrumental in getting a charter for the Bank of St. Louis, for which his father was a principal shareholder. The success of the Austin family in Missouri ended with the Panic of 1819. America's first peacetime financial crisis. The bank collapsed along with the lead market and, once again overextended, Moses lost everything. Like his father and many other Americans, young Stephen was also deep in debt due to land speculation, and he himself was left broke due to the financial crisis. Stephen decided to move to the Arkansas Territory to get a fresh start. He bought property on the south bank of the Arkansas River in the area that would eventually become Little Rock. Austin was still feeling the bite of the political bug, and he declared his candidacy for Congress in the first Arkansas territorial elections. Unfortunately, Austin entered his name only two weeks before the elections were to be held, and his late entry meant that his name was not placed on the ballot in two of the five counties. It's a sign of his popularity and fame in the area that he still placed second out of the six candidates for the office. Despite his loss, he gained a governmental post in the Arkansas Territory a few months later when he was appointed as a judge for the First Circuit Court. Austin's fortune in Arkansas soon ran out as well, though. The land that he bought was located in the area designated for the territorial capital, and its value skyrocketed. But his claim to the land was contested, and the courts ruled against him. Worse, the Territorial Assembly reorganized the government and abolished Austin's judgeship. With little reason to stay, Austin left Arkansas for Louisiana. He arrived in New Orleans in November of 1820. Destitute, Austin stayed with local lawyer and former Kentucky Congressman Joseph H. Hawkins and made arrangements to continue his study of the law. Stephen wouldn't stay in New Orleans long, though. In 1820, Moses decided to once again restart further west, hoping again that Spain would restore his fortunes. Despite the high tensions between the U.S. and colonial 
Spain and the political chaos in revolutionary Mexico, the rich and relatively undeveloped land in the Texas Territory called to Austin, who traveled there looking for lead mines when he'd been a Spaniard. He again slipped across the border into Texas, this time to scout out land where he could establish something new and unique, a colony of American settlers. Moses traveled to Presidio San Antonio de Bejar, the Spanish capital in Texas, and tried to present a plan to colonize Texas with Anglo-Americans to Governor Antonio Maria Martinez. The governor rejected Austin due to the ongoing attacks on Texas by American filibusters. We talked about those filibusters, including Dr. James Long, way back in episode 71. Martinez ordered Austin out of the country since Americans could not legally enter their territory. As he was walking through San Antonio, Austin had a chance to encounter an old acquaintance from the Spanish-Missouri days many years before. Philippe Enrique Neri was a colorful Dutch businessman who'd fled Holland after being accused of fraud and reinvented himself in Spanish Louisiana as the Dutch nobleman Baron de Bastrop. He'd made and lost several fortunes, most of it due to conning gullible Spanish officials. By this time, he was a well-liked Spanish citizen who was living in San Antonio. Bastrop liked Moses and wanted to help him, recognizing that Austin's plan was promising and knowing he could get in on the ground floor of the enterprise. He helped get a second audience with Martinez, this time prompting Austin to present his 1897 passport and still valid Spanish citizenship to establish his credentials. This helped convince the governor to agree to endorse the plan and recommend that the colonial government in Mexico City ratify it. Moses returned to Missouri to await his final approval. In 1821, the governor asked another friend of Austin's, San Antonio Mayor Erasmo Seguin, to give him the news that he had been awarded a land grant and permission to settle 300 families in Texas. Bastrop would serve as the colony's commissioner. Moses would not get to see his dream fulfilled, though. The return journey from Texas was extremely difficult, and he suffered great hardships on the trail. Soon after receiving word that his request had been granted, he began work making plans to prepare the enterprise— But his health began to fail. Just as he planned to leave for Texas, he fell ill with pneumonia and died on June 10th, 1821. Family tradition holds that his dying words were, quote, tell Stephen that he must take my place. Stephen, for his part, was reluctant to take on the venture. While he was studying law with Hawkins, he'd taken a job as an editor at the Louisiana Advertiser. He wasn't setting the world on fire, but the work in New Orleans was steady and had promise. It was only a letter from his mother, written two days before Moses died, that convinced Stephen to take on the role his father had left him. Mary wrote that Moses, quote, "...called me to his bedside, and with much distress and difficulty of speech, begged me to tell you to take his place, and if God in his wisdom thought best to disappoint him in the accomplishment of his wishes and plans formed, he prayed him to extend his goodness to you and enable you to go on with the business in the same way he would have done." No pressure. Not knowing that his father was dead by the time he received the letter, Stephen finally made up his mind to throw himself fully into his father's enterprise. He boarded a river steamship and set out upstream to meet Spanish officials in Texas. Stephen did not learn of his father's death until he was well on his way. He was in Natchitoches, Louisiana on June 31, 1821, a full three weeks after his father's passing. While he might have not been eager to take over his father's legacy in Texas, Stephen was quite shaken by his death, saying, quote, This news has affected me very much. He was one of the most feeling and affectionate fathers that ever lived. 
His faults, I now say, and always have, were not of the heart. At the tender age of 24, Stephen F. Austin was now the sole proprietor and cultivator of his father's land grant. He led a party of a few companions on a trek of over 300 miles in four weeks from Natchitoches to San Antonio. Though he had his father's will, he still needed to ensure that he would be able to reauthorize the land grant with him as the impresario. As would be often the case in Stephen F. Austin's life, this wasn't going to be an easy task. The party arrived on August 12th, but along the way, they learned that Mexico had successfully gained its independence from Spain. As such, Texas was no longer a Spanish territory, but was now a Mexican province. Since Moses Austin's agreement was as a Spanish citizen, there was now going to be even further doubt as to whether or not his impresario grant would be honored, much less transferred to Stephen. Fortunately, Austin became acquainted with Jose Antonio Navarro, a man with grand visions for the future of Texas, and one whose name would be tied to Texas independence and glory in just a few more years. Navarro was an expert in Spanish and Mexican law, and helped Austin maneuver his way through the bureaucracy to have his impresario contracts approved. The grant was reauthorized by Governor Antonio Maria Martinez. Martinez granted Austin permission to explore the Gulf Coast to find a suitable location for his colony. Bastrop was reconfirmed as the commissioner of the colony, responsible for handling bureaucratic affairs in San Antonio. A Mexican citizen, Manuel Becara, and three Native Americans served as guides for Austin and his group. The land Austin was most drawn to was the coastal plain straddling the Brazos River, from just north of the Guadalupe to Galveston Bay. Austin could have had his pick of any part of Texas, and the land in East Texas around Nacogdoches was both richer and more developed and much closer to the United States. However, it was already settled by American squatters and legal Mexican settlers. Austin wisely sought to avoid inserting himself into such a potentially explosive situation, which is something Hayden Edwards didn't heed a few years later. The rich bottomland of the Brazos was excellent for farming, close enough to Galveston, and was mostly unsettled by Tejanos. There were American squatters there, like the legendary Jug Hunter, but Austin felt he could deal with them. His 300 settlers would open up this territory, and he'd build a new town to serve as their capital and commerce center. Now that he'd found the appropriate location, he advertised his colony in New Orleans, announcing that land was available along the Brazos and Colorado rivers. The grants were quite generous and had to be appealing to anyone hoping to start a new life. A family of four would receive 1,280 acres at 12.5 cents an acre. This is only $2.25 per acre in modern money. Farmers could get 177 acres and ranchers 4,428 acres in addition to these grants. In December 1821, the first colonists crossed into the granted territory, settling on the Brazos River in what would eventually become Brazoria County. However, once again, things didn't go easy for Austin. The troubles kept on coming, but young Stephen, despite a quiet and studious nature, proved himself capable of taking on those troubles in order to realize the dream he'd inherited from his father. After an intense montage sequence, he was able to enlarge himself many, many times and turn his skin to stone. Oh, oh if only that were true, it would have made the battle against Santa Ana so much more interesting. <laughs> yes, yes. It's telling that we're talking about the father of Texas this week and next, um, because this is really the three-year anniversary for the show. Years. Yeah, it's yeah. taken us three years to get to Stephen yeah. F. Austin. Listen, we've got a lot of important Matthew McConaughey movies and uh, Steve yeah. Ray Vaughan albums to cover. No, you know, uh, he's he's a really fascinating individual. And 
there's a lot of interesting facts and books and pieces. I mean, this, you know, you could really drag this one out, but just understanding that, you know, the, the turmoil of, of financial strife that happened in America, you know, these, these busts that sort of drove everybody West. It wasn't just that people, you know, you take the history class, they, they, you sort of get this idea that, well, people just packed up and headed West. And it was like, people lost everything. And then yeah. they ran out on their debts and headed to another state to start yeah, um, over. H.W. Brandon's book, Lone Star Nation, talks a lot about this and that that Americans continually did move west. And it was it was, like you said, almost always uh, the case of of fleeing debts or just going out and seizing land. You know, it was one of the two. So you either were Jim Bowie and you, you know, faked land grants and land deeds and titles or. You just bought land on credit and then didn't pay back your debts. So that that was generally the the case for most of the, the American West for the first half of this country's history. Oh man, the first quarter at least. Well, the thing I I found I remember I read on a book on Austin years ago, and what I found interesting was that they had the lead mines, and so a big piece of their business was bullet making, and mm-hmm. so the biggest part of that was who could build the biggest tower. So you right. take the shot hot, tower. Yeah. You take a shot tower and you build this big tower and you drip lead. And then the free falling gravity would form perfect spheres of lead that would cool by the time they got to the bottom of the tower. And, yeah. uh, to do bigger shots, you needed taller towers. And, uh, I just remember reading about that and being like, you know, that's really kind of interesting. And, uh, that was sort of one of the, one of the big things that drove their lead business was the sale of bullets. Yeah. Well, that, and that's, that's- Seems like an incredibly inefficient way to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but but ironically, if you look in Wikipedia, there's a whole article about shot towers. And yeah, in fact, no, I mean, I mean, when you think yeah. about it, it does make sense. You know, using physics to do the work for you. But <laughs> right, and and the the Austin shot tower uh, is in West Western Virginia, south southwestern Virginia, and it is one of the last remaining shot towers. So Moses built this shot tower and made his first. Made and lost his first fortune around that. Yeah. yeah. I just remember thinking that was just kind of one of those funny yeah. things of, oh, well, that's how they made bullets back then. Um, <laughs> well, let's talk about this. I mean, you know, the, really the, a big crux of this is is Moses. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the dream of Texas is not really Stephen's dream. It's really Moses' dream. Yep. Yes. And much like his biblical predecessor, uh, he would not live to see the promised land. Um, yeah. it would be on his beloved successor to to yeah. to take up his dream. It yeah. is too and bad I, I think it's interesting, you know, apocryphal or not, the uh, the story of Moses's last words. Um, you know, we do have the letter that he sent, or that his uh, Stephen's mother sent to him, conveying uh, his father's wishes. So that's a very powerful charge to take on, and the fact that mm-hmm. Stephen, you know, took that on and continued his father work father's work is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and he 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 generally preferred books, and there's there's lots of letters where he you know as he's going through his troubles he he would say hey, I I just want to to be a, alone on a farm you know and uh, but uh, he he did this was the, this was his time and his moment to really shine <laughs> and 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 the troubles are just going to start but we'll we will cover those troubles and the rest of his life next week as we get into the rest of the story of how he became the father of Texas. And what is the saying? Um, some men go after greatness, others have it thrust upon them. Stephen F's kind of in the middle. Yeah. 
The funny thing about part one of this story is it sounds like, well, he's had all this hardship and strife, but he doesn't even know what's coming. Yeah. <laughs> this is the easy part. Yeah, we're yeah. in the easy part. Uh, there's a lot of episodes referenced in this one. We talked about the Jug Hunter, which is part of Ghost Stories. There's also references to um, so our Tejano Heroes of Texas episodes. And there's a reference to the Fredonia episode. So there's a bunch of references. We'll try to capture those and put those in the notes. So if you want to hear a little more story around what was happening this time, you can listen to those episodes. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max John with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. Big thanks to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press or find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. If you'd like to support the show financially, why not visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it-Texas-ranger. And while you're telling people, tell everyone you know. Tell them to go out there and listen, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.